Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Talk Radio. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Since Hamas's atrocities in Israel, there has been a 1,350% increase in anti-Semitic attacks on British Jews. That's just here in the UK. Let me repeat that for you. That's 1,350% more. An increase. It's absolutely tragic. And the usual woke, trendy celebrities that jump on every cause are silent, of course, when it comes to Jews being attacked. Well, thankfully, some people do want to speak up against this rising tide of hate. And a group of public figures have signed the October Declaration in solidarity with British Jews, including Vanessa Feltz, including Julie Hartley Brewer. And one of the organisers, of course, of the declaration uh, is friend of the show, Laura Dodsworth. She joins me now. Laura, um, very good morning to you. And first of all, I think thank you um, for what you've done here, because an awful lot of people have been watching with some alarm the way that the last couple of weekends have kind of played out, particularly here in London. Um, tell us, first of all, what the October Declaration is. Sure. Well, it's it's a declaration of over 200 um, public figures from across professions in the UK. And we've come together to say three things. First of all, really importantly, we unequivocally condemn the atrocious acts of terrorism in Israel on 7 October. On that day, um, more Jews died um, in violence than any other day since the Holocaust. And some of the stories which have um, emerged from that day are so horrific. You know, they they kind of they stay on the retina. Some of the photographs we've seen of charred bodies, people running, um, like scenes from horror films, and terrible stories of families who were bound, kneeled, tortured, their corpses desecrated and killed. They're such terrible stories. And yet, before the bodies had even been counted, before the people of Israel had had time to grieve um, and recover from their shock, there were marches around the world with people chanting, death to Israel and gas the Jews. When I saw this, I felt sickened, I think, like so many people, that anti-Semitism isn't just, it's not just something that we hear about, you know, it's real, it's its really serious. Um, 
And the fact that in this country, here in Britain, which should be a beacon of democracy, liberty, morality, humanity, and it's been a safe home for British Jews for hundreds of years, here in this country, anti-Semitism skyrocketed. So the second part of the declaration is to show British Jews that there are lots of us who stand in solidarity with you. We condemn the terrorism, but we also condemn anti-Semitism. No British Jews should be frightened in this country. No British children should be frightened to go to school. You know, four schools felt compelled to close. One school was vandalized. Um, one school was sent a very disturbing message uh, thanking Hamas and saying that um, the Jews would, would be punished. It's just so horrific to think that children at a school that receive hate messages like that. And the third part of the declaration, and this is really important, is that we are asking the media to call Hamas what it is in both law and fact, which is a terrorist organisation. Now, this has started happening, but it is terrible that the media were refusing to do it and have been dragged kicking and screaming into calling Hamas terrorists. Mm. The problem with not calling Hamas terrorists is it misleads the public. It misleads the whole debate about what's happening. It creates a false impression of a moral equivalence between a state, which has a right to self-defense, and a terrorist organization that goes into people's homes and murders them in cold blood. And the other part about calling Hamas militants or gunmen and not calling them terrorists is it is an unbelievable affront to the dead, the bereaved, and people still living under the threat of terrorism in Israel. But isn't it also astonishing as well, Laura, um, and we'll get back into the, the people that have signed the declaration in a moment, that we seem to have kind of um, almost welcomed this atmosphere in London where, you know, you've got tube train drivers actually chanting free Palestine so that the whole tube train can cheer. You've got um, last night in Tower Hamlets a complete and utter kind of roadblock situation basically going on uh, where people who live there, uh, and it's known as a very Muslim neighbourhood, um, basically sort of just blocking traffic and demonstrating on behalf of Palestine. You've got, uh, I'm going to show you this now, um, some of the jihadist sort of uh, shouting that went on during the, the, the march yesterday and the previous week, people holding up Hamas signs. And, I mean, when you see, for example, the Sunday Times yesterday doing a story about a Hamas fugitive living in North London who came here under a false name, um, who has now bought a council house with a discount, believe it or not, in Barnet, London Borough of Barnet, which is a very Jewish neighbourhood, acting still as a Hamas chief while he was living in London, going as far as to places like Russia to negotiate with Vladimir Putin, you wonder what on earth is going on in Britain. You're seeing this guy holding a flag up, the police yesterday saying, although that's not an ISIS flag, don't worry, um, it's, not, it's nothing to do with um, jihad because jihad can mean lots of different things. I mean, it seems to be an extraordinary state of affairs. I can't imagine any other country other than Israel that would be treated like this. Absolutely. I mean, there is this different um, different account that Israel is held to, which others have already spoken about. It's, it's so unfair. Um, but these marches in, in this country, and, you know, there were 100,000 people marching in London. You know, we have to be careful about um, preserving the freedom of speech, the right to peaceful protest with a balance with, um, you know, not permitting people to glorify terrorism. And of course, I think what feeds into that is 
the mainstream media and even our national broadcaster not calling Hamas terrorists. So there should be no glorification of terrorism. Um, some, I think some of, the, some of the thinking around the language that's being used, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty, you know, is the word jihad, is the expression from the river to the sea acceptable or not? This is beyond what the declaration is about. Um, we are not trying to police specific language. We would, of course, urge the police to uphold the law without fear or favour. But on those marches in general, I can't imagine what it feels like to be a British Jew who lives in those areas and see hundreds of thousands of people or in other cities, thousands of people um, marching so soon after medieval acts of butchery on your own people. And let's not forget this rise in anti-Semitism. I mean, some of the stories have been really toe-curling. People have been um, shouting pejoratives and insults at Jews in the street. People have been pulling down the hostage posters, yeah. defacing them. Um, somebody was assaulted and shouted at while putting up the posters. There are so many awful examples of anti-Semitic um, hate crimes which are listed on the Community Security Trust website. And I think that those of us who organised this declaration didn't realise how, how close to the surface this thread of anti-Semitism is. And it's so important to show strength of numbers. You know, if there's ever a time to show British Jews that we stand with them, it's right now. You know, this, this cannot happen. It is abhorrent that um, people cannot go about their business without fear on, on the streets of London. I know one family who are sending their children to Jewish school in non-uniform because they don't feel it's safe to be identified as Jews walking through the streets in this country. And I'm sure that all of those marches just really contribute to that feeling of, of being unsafe. Well, indeed. And, and as we saw over the course of the weekend, you know, the only chance you've got of being spoken to by the police for any kind of infractione would appear to be uh, if you get out a flag of St George and start waving that around, because that might be considered to be racist. Mm, I think something's, something's gone wrong. Um, you know, it, it emerged that some of the Hamas terrorists were on drugs, when they committed these atrocities in Israel. And it's not surprising to hear it because how how do you kill babies? Yeah. You have to be anaesthetized, something, something has to be numbing you. But you have to wonder here, what's anaesthetized people? What has numbed people to the extent that within hours, within hours of these acts happening, people are tweeting Casual cruelty, like decolonization, isn't a metaphor. And people are in the streets demanding that Israel doesn't retaliate and that Palestine is freed. Before there's even been any kind of decent pause for the victims of the terrorism. And I think it's a moment for a lot of, you know, what we might call elites, liberal progressives, also to take, you know, to take note and think, what's happened? How did how did we get here? How have we come to this yeah. in this country? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, Laura, how we got to this. We have an unbridled and useless immigration policy, which has allowed an awful lot of people, and maybe this is something that people should be saying more, uh, we've allowed people into this country who now live in this country uh, who would rather support... Um, 
a Palestinian terrorist organization and would support a democratically elected government in a place like Israel. And it's as simple as that. It's a problem and we've brought it on ourselves, haven't we? Um, yes, I mean, you could be right. But something I want to say about support, uh, we have been so humbled and so pleased by the huge show of support for the October Declaration. Um, like I said, we had 200 signatories, people from across public life, um, peers, MPs, historians, authors, journalists, people in entertainment, the great Sir Tom Stoppard, Dame Maureen Lippmann, as you said, Vanessa Feltz and Julie Hartley Brewer from, from the Magnificent Talk TV. And me, um, I signed it last night. all walks of life who've shown their support. But as of, well, before I came on air, I think another 12,000 people, members of the public and other well-known people, have signed since it went live last night. And I think this is such an important message to put across to British Jews. And it's the whole point of the declaration. And it's to say the support for you, the support for you, for British Jews. You're not standing alone. We're with you. We're in solidarity with you. We want you to feel safe. We want you to be safe. And you need to see that there is serious support and support in numbers for you. Yeah. So what this shows is how decent the British population really is. You know, this only went live last night. I'm sure many more thousands of people are going to want to sign the October Declaration and show that we are a decent and compassionate nation where people should feel safe. Absolutely. Laura, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Laura Dosworth, uh, author and journalist and also uh, one of the founders uh, of this October Declaration. I would urge you to go and sign it. Uh, we'll be putting it out on Twitter and you can sign it. Uh, just tell us briefly, Laura, where to go for that. Go to britishfriendsofisrael.org. OK, great. Thank you very much indeed. Laura Dosworth there uh, on the fact that Britain is a welcoming country, that Britain is also a compassionate country and that Britain should not be defined in any way, shape or form uh, by people marching up and down the streets of this country uh, calling for jihad against another country. It's just not very British, I'm afraid, and I don't think most Britons would agree with it. But we're going to talk more about that as the day goes on because there will be Suella Braverman's speech to be taken care of. She's going to be likely to get up in the House of Commons and talk about why the police have to be more specific how the police have to crack down on all of this hate speech, all of this hate potential crime uh, which is being committed uh, with every one of these marches that takes place. You know, when you've got 100,000 people, of course you're not going to say that they're all uh, after jihad, that they all want to take some kind of revenge against Israel. Uh, but there's an awful lot of them and it looks an awful lot like um, a crowd of people that don't like Jewish people. And I think that is entirely wrong. And if that's the way that the Metropolitan Police is going to be policing it, then I think that's going to be entirely wrong. One of the problems, of course, is the way that the media has been treating these particular marches and also the events in the Middle East as well. Since October the 7th, the BBC has been hitting the headlines once again for all the wrong reasons. On Sunday, Israel's former Prime Minister accused the BBC of bias and lacking moral clarity over the Israel-Hamas war coverage. Take a look at this fury exchange uh, between Naftali Bennett and presenter Victoria Derbyshire. And I understand that BBC has taken a side of, uh, uh, on the Gazan side because all your questions are only about the Gazan civilians. That's not you true. You haven't asked one that's question. That's not true. You haven't true. asked one question I, I began about by those children. That, from the very beginning of this interview, from you the very just are asking me about them. Mr. But Bennett, it seems that, that is you not care true. little about our side. Oh, it is. Mr. What Bennett, I began, I, began, I began by talking about the hostages. And what I'm asking you about now is... No, I'm not talking is... about the hostages. I'm talking about the babies that were murdered. And you keep on 
caring only about one side, but that is the BBC way. But uh, let me let me tell you something. We're here protecting you. You're, we don't need your protection. Former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett there talking to Victoria Derbyshire on the Laura Kunzberg show. I'm joined now by Rebecca Ryan, campaign director for uh, Defund the BBC. Rebecca, you and I, very good morning to you, by the way. Uh, you and I have spoken many times mm. about the BBC and their sort of innate incapability, it mm. seems to me, to get most things right. They've been spectacularly bad since October the 7th, haven't they? They really have. I mean, this is an issue that was bound to be, you know, to like a tin, go up like a tinderbox. Mm. And the BBC have handled it so badly, mm. you know. Um, you know, we, we saw how they've handled, mishandled things that have been really divisive over the last few decades, but particularly, you know, with Brexit, they painted yeah. one side mm. uh, as is basically evil and old and stupid. Yeah. And then we had, you know, their coverage of the Black Lives Matters riots, you know, as it's sort of mainly peaceful so they, they've got they've got a uh, you know a, a backtrack record yeah, they've of got this. form exactly they've got form but also it, just know. in my own um sort of um recent memory we've got the attack on the uh, the hospital in gaza mm. uh, which a bbc reporter actually said these words before anybody could mm. have known one how much damage had been done or two how many people could have been killed he said it's hard to imagine that this could be anything other than an israeli airstrike now it turns out that it wasn't an israeli airstrike um, and there are still differing um, sort of considerations about what might have happened but certainly it looks as though there was an explosion in a car park there was not a destruction of a hospital yeah. uh, there was not 500 deaths and it was, probably wasn't an israeli airstrike They've had to apologise for that. You've got John Simpson careering around telling everybody that the BBC has to follow various rules in order not to call Hamas a terrorist organisation. Yeah. They've now kind of sort of slightly taken a step back and are calling Hamas a prescribed terrorist organisation as if to say, yeah. well, we don't call them that, yeah. but other people do. I mean, what on earth is going on with them? Well, this is the thing, and it's so dangerous, isn't it? Because as we've seen on the streets across the UK, as Laura was saying, uh, you know, a moment mm. ago, that we've had this immediate uh, knee-jerk reaction where you've seen people out on the streets protesting for uh, in support of Palestine, mm. but and and emotions are so inflamed. Right. And this is a result of our national broadcaster that is is fanning these these right. flames well, exactly. by you, by not being so clearly um, um, unbiased mm. in this issue. And, and one of the issues, of course, death. that the BBC has to now deal with is the fact that somebody like Naftali Bennett there, a former Prime Minister yeah. of Israel, has basically looked at the BBC and said, you're a biased organisation. Yeah. You know, the reputation of the BBC around the world um, is very important, not just to them, but to Britain, I think. Mm. And I know that after that report about the hospital attack, there were massive demonstrations all over mm. the, the Muslim world, a terrible one in Iran outside of the British embassy, yeah. you know, which looked like it could turn really nasty at one point. You know, demonstrations on the West Bank, demonstrations in Gaza, demonstrations all over uh, the Muslim world, as I say, because the BBC had said it was an, uh, an Israeli attack on a hospital. And it changed everything. It stopped the, um, the meeting that was due to take place between Joe Biden and yep. several Arab leaders in Jordan. Stopped all of that. Yep. So you've got to say to the people at the BBC and Broadcasting House, you know, you're not just talking to your own internal, you know, HR department here. Yep. You're talking to the world. Exactly. And you're giving the wrong message. Indeed. They're, they're playing with fire. Yeah. They've got so much power, as you say. And this is what how the government always protects the licence fees, that it sort of says, oh, we've got this, this soft power. Yeah. Well, what we've seen now in this week and since the beginning of, uh, of the... the issue that's you know reignited mm. in the Middle East is the BBC has completely mishandled that soft power that it has right. and it's as you say it's made matters worse mm. 
they should have gone into that all reported of, of, of that issue, you know, with extreme caution, mm. because it is an issue that's been going on for, for you know, for yeah. decades, that is extremely complicated, mm. and there is passion on both sides. Um, and, and they've just waded into yeah. it, haven't they? With absolutely, well, they've you know, waded in with the normal BBC kind yeah. of aplomb, or lack thereof, yeah. where they've decided yeah. who's good and who's bad. I mean, I said this to Laura, you can't imagine any other country in the world suffering a terrorist attack like they did in yeah. um, in, in Israel on, on uh, October the 7th, where effectively had it been then, it was, they're calling it their 9-11. If 9-11 had caused the deaths of something like 25,000 Americans, that's yeah. the scale that yeah. we're talking about. I can't imagine any other country in the world suffering that sort of terrorist attack and then suddenly being on the wrong end of some kind of vilification process. Exactly. But it's, the BBC are dealing with this as if it's some kind of middle-class dinner party yeah. conversation piece. You know, who's who's you Oh, well, of course, you you know, and, they, they've you know, killed loads of children in Gaza over the years. Well, you know, one, there's not an awful lot of truth that comes out of some of these reports mm. in Gaza. Nobody knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. Yes, there are obviously people with sensible points of view yeah. who think there should be some kind of, you know, rapprochement made yeah. and that we can't go on like this, and I think I would yeah. be one of those people. But mm. I can certainly understand why Israel is not interested in having a ceasefire while Gaza uh, is holding up to 200 hostages. Absolutely, and this is an atrocity that the, the, the whole of the country yeah. was looking at and seeing the things that were carried out against innocent young people on the main part, and you know who were who were there just to ha you know have a nice have a nice time, who were you know slaughtered, the absolute terror, and for the BBC to then turn that around as oh this is a political point scoring opportunity was just so distasteful, and you know at defund the BBC we've seen sort of a, a massive amount of outpouring of people who are enraged who are yeah. sort of saying if you don't want to fund Hamas then don't fund the BBC, right. you know, and stop paying your licence fee, you know, because that's how people mm. are feeling about it. You know, this is, a, it's an outrage, really, right. when you're seeing these innocent people who've been slaughtered and then the BBC sort of trying to do what they usually do, which is turn it into a political point score. Yes, and trying desperately to make sure that they've got sort of every angle heard from. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, because of the way that they seem to do it, um, it's almost like they don't really know where mm. the neutral ground is. Yeah. You know, they think they know, yeah. but they're not occupying neutral ground. They're actually occupying pro-Palestinian ground, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They, Very they, clearly. They, yeah, I mean, we know that the BBC have been sort of... had had this sort of far-left... Uh, they, they use Palestine almost as a tokenistic... Thing, don't they? So yes. this is what I mean about it being a dinner party conversation where they go, oh, yeah, I'm pro-Palestine, without thinking about the implication of what that means for Israel and what that means for, for Jews across the world as well. And yeah. they, don't, they don't see it as a complex issue. And we've seen this time and time again with the BBC, that they can't take complex issues and look at it and go, and actually, you know, people, you know, there is a grey area mm. and this is something that needs to be looked at carefully. They just jump on one side yeah. because that's, you know... Well, like London... I say, they're, they're now getting a reputation for just getting everything wrong. Yeah. I mean, just to finish with something completely completely different. Yep. Um, it now turns out they've spent nearly £50,000 restoring this controversial sculpture outside of Broadcasting House mm. made by uh, Eric Gill, mm. uh, an admitted paedophile. Now, again, you know, Kevin and I had this argument earlier about, you know, you don't necessarily vilify art just because the artist mm. happens to be a pretty disgusting individual. Mm. But I think if it's out front of the flagship building of the BBC, you have to take a different view, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, it's a really disturbing statue, isn't yeah. it? I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, you know, it's one of those things... I try not to go it... too near the BBC, <laughs> to be honest. Exactly. It's one of those things, again, that, that our audience and the supporters of Defund the BBC are always, you know, bringing up yeah. over and over again because they're appalled yeah. that this known paedophile who's got, a, who's got a statue on the side of the BBC, basically of mm. a young, naked child, yeah. and it's just... It's, what are they thinking? Yeah. You know, just, just get rid of it.
it. Just get rid of it, exactly. You'd think it would be that simple. Yeah. I mean, I would just get rid of quite a few of the people working there as well, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Ryan, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Defund the BBC uh, is her organisation, and I think a lot of, lot of you uh, would be already in the presence of defunding it because over a million people, I think, in the last year alone have refused to pay their licence fee and just don't bother paying it anymore. And so many people who have never paid a licence fee don't have any intention of doing so. Now, coming up after the break on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, uh, we're going to go live to Jerusalem for the latest on the ongoing conflict as Israel continues to carry out strikes in Gaza and Lebanon. We'll see you after the break. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And now it's time for Taking the Mic. Suella Braverman is going to challenge the Metropolitan Police Commissioner over officers' decisions to allow a jihad chant at that pro-Palestine rally over the weekend, insisting that there can be no place for incitement to hatred or violence on UK streets. The Home Secretary is going to hold a meeting with Sir Mark Rowley on Monday, today, after officers took no action when supporters of an extremist Islamist group chanted jihad, 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 during a protest in London on Saturday. Now... For those people who don't live in London, it might be a very different experience. For those people who live outside of London, and many of our listeners and viewers don't have anything to do with London, you might look upon London and go, it's a very strange-looking place these days. It doesn't look very much like London. I think we have to be careful not to take this minority of people who are uh, a rather a large number protesting against Israel, a democratic state, the only democratic state in the entire region um, of the Middle East, let's face it demonstrating against it as if they are the sworn enemy of this country. People said to me over the weekend, what would happen uh, if we were in a situation like we were some years ago when we attacked Iraq or when we attacked Afghanistan? Would we have similar marches against British occupation of those countries? The point is this. There's nothing wrong with being in favour of a free Palestinian state. But what is wrong is the way that this is being policed. There's no question in anybody's mind, including Suella Braverman's, that the police are doing the wrong thing here. What we don't need from the police is excuses, but that's exactly what we've got. The Metropolitan Police actually said in a statement that jihad can mean many things. So when you've got lots of angry-looking young men walking up and down a street, waving Palestinian flags, calling for a jihad, which is, in other words, known as a holy war against Israel, if you're a Jewish person living in this country, you'd have to be pretty worried, wouldn't you? So the point is this. It's all very well saying that jihad only means some kind of faithful preserve of people who believe in Islam. The point is, if you're shouting jihad, if you're waving banners that call for an end to Israel's occupation, if you're waving banners that call for support for Hamas, those are supposed to be crimes. They are supposed to be the police's purview to go and arrest people. But they haven't been arresting people. Instead, they've been warning English people not to wave English flags around in case it might be racist. They've been telling Jewish groups not to have vigils or demonstrations in case they might get hurt because they might be putting themselves in danger. We must stop this ridiculous overtaking of the streets of this country, and certainly the capital city, by Palestinian supporters. It's one-sided and it's not right. And the police are going to have to get a grip of it or else it's going to get worse. We've already heard that they're planning on marching every single weekend until something changes. Well, pretty soon, it's going to be Remembrance Sunday. And I hope to God the police have sorted this out by then. 
Because one war cry is all very well. But let's face it, we do not wish to see the streets of Britain overrun by people who do not agree with basic British values. And if that includes basic Israeli values as well, then that's what I'm going to say. Enough is enough. It's time that these people, if they wish to go and fight for Palestine, go and fight for Palestine. Don't do it in Shepherd's Bush. Don't do it in Piccadilly. Don't do it in Tower Hamlets. Do it where you're supposed to be wanting to be rather than here. Thank you very much indeed. That is taking the mic. Now let's move on to what's actually happening in Israel's war uh, on the terrorist group Hamas. It's been continuing. They've stepped up airstrikes on Gaza over the last 48 hours. There's been additional attacks launched on targets in the West Bank and in Syria. Meanwhile, the US is pressuring Israel to delay any kind of ground invasion of Gaza to allow more time to negotiate the release of the hostages taken by Hamas more than a fortnight ago. Because, of course, many of those hostages are still there. Nobody really knows what their condition is. Two hostages were released uh, a few days ago, but so far we know that many children are still being held. Many elderly people are still being held, and nobody's really sure precisely how their welfare is. I'm joined now from Jerusalem by Richard Pater, director of the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre. Uh, thanks for joining me. We've been saying the ground invasion of Gaza is imminent for the past two weeks, but it hasn't happened. This presumably has to have something to do, uh, does it not, with the hostages? Uh, thank you for having me on. Yes, I think it's it, uh, the hostage uh, situation weighs very heavily on Israeli policymakers. This is obviously an unprecedented situation. Back in 2014, or for the last nine years, there have been two Israeli civilians held in Gaza and the bodies of two Israeli soldiers from the fighting in 2014. But obviously, 222 is on a different scale, um, 30 of whom are babies and children, and there is a plea going out to the International Red Cross to, to, to visit them, to get some form of access to them. Some of them, we understand, were very badly injured when they were taken captive. And so there is a great deal of concern and anxiousness and kind of our hearts are just with the families and the, uh, the friends of those who are captive. Yeah, absolutely right. And in Israel itself, where, where you are in Jerusalem, what's this sort of atmosphere like? Because we've seen a massive increase in this country, um, over a thousand percent of uh, anti-Semitic um, incidents, anti-Semitic threats and all that kind of thing. A lot of people, Jewish people in this country, feeling as though it's not safe for them here anymore. What, what's the feeling in Israel? So I think the feeling here is twofold. First of all, there is still a lot of grief. I've personally been visiting... Um, families who were paying condolence visits, visits to those who have lost family members and friends and just hearing some of the accounts of their, of their stories of the survivors is just absolutely horrific. At the same time, there is a real strong sense of national unity now that what is, this attack from October the 7th was on such a horrific scale that has brought the country together. And I would add that it's not just not just Jews who are united, it's also, thankfully, Israeli Arab citizens, some of whom who understand better than most the nature of Hamas and the nature of the threat of, of Hamas. And they are also, they also, by the way, victims of Hamas. There were, there were Bedouin and Arab villages that were also targeted on October the 7th. So there's a strong feeling of unity against terror and unifying the people of Israel. 
And what's the worry about involvement from other countries? You know, we know that Israel is a sort of an island in a sea of, of, uh, of Muslim nations. Um, it's one of the only democracies in the region. Um, you've got Hezbollah to the north. You've got Egypt to the west. Uh, you've got Syria on the other side as well. Um, how concerned are Israeli citizens about the involvement with Lebanon? Well, broadly speaking, the Israeli assessment sees this. All of, all of Israel's enemies are funded, guided, supported by Iran. You know, when we see the weapons, the, 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 the military capacity that Hamas has, it's only coming from one place, from Iran. They've smuggled it through. They've been shared kind of... Uh, they've also smuggled operatives through to gain expertise in explosives and other, other weapons. And that's the same modus operandi that we see across the, the Arab world, unfortunately. Iran looking to ignite and uh, influence um, the Palestinian sectors in the West Bank. Obviously, Hezbollah is their most powerful proxy, but also in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen even. I mean, we saw just on Friday rockets fired from Yemen, ballistic rockets and, and drones launched from Yemen, which were thankfully intercepted by our close allies, the, the American Navy based in the, in the, in the Red Sea. So the, the, the threats are tangible and all around. And it's kind of, from Israeli perspective, it's quite clear that it's the Iranians who are initiating and leaving this, leading this. Right. And I mean, are you disappointed that the international community is kind of powerless to do anything with that? Because one of the things we heard about this attack was that it was intended for Hamas to derail the newly formed kind of alliances between Saudi Arabia uh, and other um, Islamic countries and Israel. The UAE had, had reopened kind of, you know, channels with them. Um, it was already something that was looking quite good. That now would appear to have been sort of torn up and thrown away. Um, do you think the international community could be doing more? Well, I'd, I'll give this a kind of a positive spin, if I may. And first of all, really appreciate the support that we're getting from international allies. Um, top of the list, obviously, the US and the UK as well. We saw a very important uh, visit from, uh, from Prime Minister Sunak last week, which was very much appreciated. We've also appreciated the comments that the, uh, the leader of the opposition, of the Labour Party, has also made in support of understanding Israel's predicament. And I also think, and this is far more difficult and sensitive for Israel's Israeli allies, um, but yesterday there was an unfortunate incident on the Egyptian border where Israel misfired and, target and hit by accident an Egyptian uh, observation post. And the message coming out of the Egyptian army, I think from an Israeli perspective, couldn't have been better. There was complete understanding that they work in security cooperation and in coordination there, that they were not the target. They accepted Israel's apology immediately. In another era, you could imagine that that would also have caused tensions. So I think um, the, the Egyptian government is, is very important here. And you mentioned the, uh, the, the UAE. And I'll also just kind of underline from my own personal contact with people uh, having visited the UAE, it's so refreshing and important to hear Arab allies understand and recognize that Jews are authentic part of this region, that they are part of the Abrahamic uh, faith. And that's kind of where there are pr uh, pragmatic and moderate Islams and uh, um, Muslims and Jews and Christians mm. that can come together as a source for, for peace and supporting each other, unlike the Hamas, um, ISIS-like jihadis. Sure. But many of those countries you mentioned, particularly the UAE and prior, prior to that, Saudi, you know, are not great friends of Iran. And in fact, you know, it's a Sunni-Shia thing, isn't it, that's going on. I mean, can, can, can anybody bring pressure to bear on Iran? I think that's what they're trying. I mean, I think that's the, that's the objective. When the US moves its aircraft carriers 
off into the East Med off Israeli shores when the when the Royal Navy also sends ships there. That's the signal to Iran of don't uh, don't push us, don't test us. That we've got got Israel's back. And so again, President Biden in particular has been an amazing sh shown his amazing support and understanding both in terms of rhetoric, but also in terms of replenishing munitions and giving Israel that uh, giving Israel that backing. Um, also working behind the scenes with the Qataris to try and uh, reach some understanding and release at least some of the hostages. So I think that that's important. But as you mentioned as well, all of this timing is deliberately aimed at creating that gap between Israel and the potential realignment, particularly with Saudi, Saudi Arabian normalization. And I would like to think that when this is over, those talks can be, can be resumed, that there is also hope that the more moderate Palestinian Authority can be brought into that process as well, and, uh, and that there is a, a different type of leadership can take over in Hamas once the fighting is over. Richard Pacer, thank you very much indeed for joining us from Jerusalem there. Coming up uh, in the next hour, we've got loads more. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, Peter Hitchens returns for his weekly takedown of the week's top stories, and we'll find out what he's been doing behind bars. Don't go anywhere. Good morning. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and on your smart speaker. Coming up, Lebanon and Gaza are hit with airstrikes overnight as the US urges Israel to hold off an invasion for more hostage talks. The Home Secretary will demand an explanation from Met Police Chief Sir Mark Rowley over why jihad chants at a pro-Palestine rally didn't actually lead to any arrests. And there's fury as well at the BBC after they spent £50,000 restoring a statue by paedophile sculptor Eric Gill. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is great to be back, I have to say. Absolutely uh, the place that I want to be. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Peter Hitchens is coming up in the next hour, but now let's get the latest headlines from Emily Rose Adams. Good morning. America is urging Israel to delay invading Gaza to give more time to negotiate the release of hostages taken by Hamas. Many of them are dual citizens, with pressure coming from other allies as well. Hamas has suggested they're held by different groups, including Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which complicates negotiations. Adva Ada's 85-year-old grandmother is one of those kidnapped by Hamas. People will think about their grandmother and see her picture. It might... Uh, help us uh, get the international community pressure on the Arab countries to force Hamas freedom all back home. Meanwhile, the Home Secretary is meeting the boss of the Metropolitan Police, saying she'll challenge a decision not to arrest anyone over chance for jihad at a protest in London. It was heard at a pro-Palestinian march on Saturday, but police say no offence was committed as the word has multiple meanings. In other news, police have arrested and bailed a man in his 30s on suspicion of criminal damage over a fire at a multi-storey at Luton Airport earlier this month that grounded flights for 18 hours. It's understood police are treating it as an accidental blaze caused by a vehicle fault. Up to 1,500 cars were inside the car park at the time. 
There are warnings of more flooding to come as people pick up the pieces after Storm Babette. Thousands of homes in England and Scotland are damaged and the Met Office says there's more heavy rain forecast in some of the affected areas. In Retford in Nottinghamshire, more than 600 homes have been damaged and these people live there. It's been horrendous. It's been worse ever since I've lived here, really. Uh, torrents of water coming over the back here onto Darrow Roll from the river. The fear and the upset is tangible. Um, last night, people were out on the streets just, just wo really, really worried. And whilst there's lots of community support, the f you know, people's homes and livelihoods are being wrecked. £150 million is being put into bus services after the cancellation of the northern leg of HS2. Rishi Sunak's promising the money for smaller transport schemes instead. The government says the funding for the Midlands and Northern England is the first stage of a £1 billion investment. And a man who bought a pool table after winning the lottery is now queuing up to represent England at the European Championships. Neil Jones won £2.4 million back in 2010 and has been practicing ever since. That's the latest. Now, Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Time for a look at today's weather with Nazni Gaffer. Times Radio sponsors Talk TV Weather. Hello. Storm Babette has been and gone, but the effects of it are still lingering on as that rain that we are seeing today and over the next few days will be falling on already saturated ground, causing further flooding issues. Now, the rain for today is mainly across parts of Ireland, moving into Northern Ireland later, so becoming cloudier from the west there. Sunshine, though, this afternoon for much of Scotland and Northern England. And further south, it will be bright, but turning increasingly cloudy from the south. And by the end of the day, rain to the southeast of England. And that rain will be moving its way slowly northwards through tonight up towards parts of East Anglia, the East Midlands and the Lincolnshire area and it meanders across these areas through tonight and tomorrow therefore falling on the saturated ground that could cause some further flooding issues. The rain across parts of Ireland will also move across much of southwest England, Wales and central southern England overnight. So for England and Wales a cloudy wet night at times and therefore it will be fairly mild. Scotland will be chilly with a patchy frost by the morning but it will be mostly dry. Then tomorrow that rain continues across many parts of eastern England and the northeast as I mentioned, there could be further flooding issues across southern Scotland. Some rain is possible too. Northern Ireland seeing some showers and sunshine and showers in the south. Times Radio sponsors Talk TV Weather. Well, it was only a matter of time before we saw our next guest behind bars, some might say. In a new Channel 4 series, a string of celebrities surrender their freedoms to spend a week in prison. Have a look at this. Seven well-known faces are going to find out if prison works. Sharing cells with reformed criminals. Recreating life on the inside. We're in prison now. This is a new life. This is the jungle. Yeah. 
Get out of here. Take your pants off. Now squat. Grab that, grab that. People write that I should go to prison every day. I'm a Tory MP. Look, I'm running with my bar. It is a hell of a thing to do. Sorry to be emotional. Look on the statistics. Ah! It's not working. Wake up, government. Get out. Blimey. Here to discuss his time in the clink is Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, very good morning. They seem to have found a clip that you're not in. Well, I know. But <laughs> I, I have to show you there is a lot that I am in. Yes. I have to wait a bit. It looks like quite... I mean, I didn't recognise all of those faces. Um, no, well, minor celebrities is the... Uh, I, I certainly uh, recognise the uh, veterans minister, um, who's quite brave to be putting himself in that situation. He wasn't with us. He was on a separate thing. He's right. been spliced in. Right. So I, I can't tell you what it was like being inside with the okay. so I, I don't know. But you've written about it. Um, four days banged up with ex-cons, uh, a documentary where you say you generally feared for your safety. Uh, there's a picture of you, which is a sort of um, what looks like a mugshot, HMP Shrewsbury, Peter Hitchens. Um, it looks a bit terrifying. Well, it was. I, when I signed up to do it, I thought, well, theoretically, it might be frightening, but I thought, oh, come on, it's a television company. They're not going to take any risks. The thing was, once I got in there, there was this feeling that things could go wrong mm. and that there I was with people who wouldn't necessarily like me. Right. So I have to say, some of the people, the, the, ex, the, the ex-prisoners who were there, were extremely kind and generous. Mm. Uh, I was ended the, the whole thing on pretty good terms with all of them, but there were certainly moments of what you might call nervousness uh, during the four days. And when I woke up on the third morning, if someone had come to me and said, you can leave now, mm. I would have been overjoyed to get out. It right. was not, it was, it was harder to endure than I thought it would be. Right. Because I think for those of us who have never been in that situation, one of the things that I think people would be astonished at is your lack of sort of um, authority over your own life, that you, you cannot any longer be in charge of yourself. You're powerless. Yeah. And this is the whole, the whole point about prison is, is powerlessness. Uh, certainly someone like me is powerless. Of course, if you're a, if, if you're a practiced, violent uh, person, good at intimidation, then power flows yeah, to you. Right. And the big problem with our prisons is that it's not authority that's powerful in them, it's the other prisoners. Yeah. And the, the prison officers, who I have to say I have endless respect for what they do and what they have to put up with, are outnumbered hugely outnumbered and have to pretty much negotiate what order they can get in mm. places which are fundamentally disorderly. The prison officers who were there all said to me that the programme was a very good simulation of the real thing without the violence and without the suicides. Wow. They were two things that would, were not yeah. happening. Uh, but the word, you know, it, it, it often seemed quite close to violence and you felt you know, if, you know, that, some, that something might easily happen to you on the stairs. Yeah. Did you feel as though you were part of some kind of um, Lord of the Flies kind of social construct then? Was that, was that a sort of survival of the fittest thing going Fundamentally, on? I, I knew deep down that if anything went badly wrong, I could hit the panic button and somebody would come, though how long it would take them to you come. You would hope. Yeah, but how long it would take them to come was always the question in my mind. Yeah. The place was completely rigged up with cameras and microphones. Mm. They didn't, there were no camera crews roaming around. It was right. all done by fixed cameras right. all over the place so I thought okay but no it was it, it was definitely uh, a, a confirmation of what of what I thought when I'd been to visit prisons that indeed Lord of the Flies is it mm. there, is, there is naked power mm. here 
And of course, if it had been the real thing, it would have been a. And did you have to break. find yourself being a different Peter Hitchens? Did you think? No, you I feel didn't. like you had to be a bit more physical, or you had to be no more I just, threatening. No, I, I don't. That was that, that never really came up. Sometimes you had to assert yourself because the program was set up to make you do so. There was one particular occasion when one of the prisoners decided to target me. Right. And I, I, I started off. It took me straight back to boarding school. Well, and being right. seven years old, I started off doing what was often the most effective thing, which was to ignore it. Right. Eventually, I realised it was not going to go away, so right. I had I had to respond. But I thought to try to be as true to myself as possible, not pretend otherwise. But whether I would have done that in the real circumstances, I have to confess, I'm not sure. It would have been probably a hundred times more more frightening if it if it had been real, and that, yeah. that you, you have to realise that. But we all of us taking part in it, I think, took it very seriously. Mm. The, the minor celebrities, the, the former prisoners and the prison officers all tried very hard to simulate as far as was possible the real thing. Yeah. And I think when you see it, and I do, I've seen the first episode in which I barely feature, uh, when you see it, I think you'll agree with me, I think they did a pretty good job. It's not far mm. off and you wouldn't... Um, I don't think anybody would, even for the, as it were, the, the light experience which I underwent, anybody would volunteer for it. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because your reaction to it is, is exactly as I would expect my reaction to be, which is I never want to go back to that. I never no. want to do that again. One of the things that we say when we sit in situations like I do and you do, sort of pontificating about the great uh, wrongs of the world, you say, well, when people go to prison, they should hate it so much they don't want to go back. But that's obviously not the case for everybody. Well, there are several things about that. Many people end up in prison who never expect to go there. Mm. Uh, one... one bad slip at the wheel of a car can put people in prison yeah. very quickly in surprising fashions. There are people uh, who were members of parliament uh, in, during the expensive scandal who ended up in prison yeah. and all kinds of other people who do. Uh, one of the things prisoners, real prisoners laugh at is mm. the assumption of people on the outside that they'll never go there. Yeah. Uh, you can't be that sure. Uh, the other thing is that if you do go to prison, then you generally, although an awful lot of prisoners are released very quickly these days, you generally go there for quite a while. My guess is that almost certainly the main impact of it impresses itself on you in the first week, and mm. after that you begin to get used to it. Yeah. The other thing is that our system, and this is what's most fundamentally wrong with it, except in cases of homicide and one or two other crimes, most people go to prison only after they've committed probably 50 or 60 yeah. crimes, and they're already habitual criminals. It's not going to make them better people. No, and it's not going to make the prison a better place, I suppose, to go. I mean, was there any... Um, positives that you could take from it. Was oh, enormously. I mean, I, I got to know people I'd never otherwise have met. Mm. And, you know, they, as I say, there's a lot of generosity among you know, when we sat down and talked. There was a lot of generosity with, with time and experience. And I heard some extraordinary personal stories mm. from people and, and found myself necessarily uh, on reasonable personal terms with people I would normally have crossed the street to avoid. That's educational. Mm. It's good for you. Whether it's good for them is another matter, but it's certainly good for me. Yeah. I, know, I know more about the world than I did before I, I did the experiment. Right. And would you say your views of, of prison changed? Not at all. Uh, that, the, my, my views, as much as I just expressed to you, the whole thing is fundamentally wrong. Our criminal justice system mm. is completely broken. The fact that our prisons are bad, uh, that they, they're the consequences of very major social and political mistakes made largely in the 60s, uh, and it doesn't, and the, and the fact that the, the, the conditions of people in them are often pitiable and disgusting, mm. doesn't mean that I'm against the idea of having a, a, a penal system right. uh, or a tough, uh, a, a tough and functioning police force. I'm very much in favour of these things. We don't have them. 
Uh, and I, it isn't just liberals who, who need to be against squalor and, and disorder in prisons. Everybody should be against it. We should have a proper functioning prison system under the control of authority in which people work and in which people know that, uh, that they're being punished for what they've done rather than just being left in a warehouse. Exactly right. I mean, we were talking just this morning about the three prisoners who have walked out of an open prison um, somewhere in Suffolk over the course of the Yeah, Horsley Bay, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and open prisons seem to me to be things that are kind of fundamentally pointless. Because well, my guess would be in this case that what's happened is because the prisons are so hugely overcrowded is that people were put into a, a, a Category D prison, I think, yeah. who would never normally have been put right. there. And normally people don't get to those places unless they can pretty much be trusted to stay there. But the, the fascinating thing is, the softer our criminal justice system has got, the fuller the prisons have become. This is the great paradox. Mm. And this is, so you can only understand it if you, if you realize that what happens, if prisons stop deterring people, then the number of people committing crimes hugely increases. And even though your criminal justice system is immensely ineffective and your police are absent, more and more people are going to end up in prison. It's nearly three times as many people mm. in prison now as it was in, in, in 1950. Yeah. And during that time, of course, the, prisons have, the, the criminal justice system has grown less tough. So why does a feebler criminal justice system put more people in prison? Yeah. Because it's no use. Well, because it's no use. It's also Absolutely no got use. quite a lot of foreign criminals in it. I mean, yeah, the, last week it was the Conservatives' vow to get rid of all of these foreign criminals. I don't know why they're suddenly going to do it now. Well, well we I, do know. But I, I think mean... you do know, yes. <laughs> but, but, I, but you see, the, the real failure is of deterrence. Yeah. People have to be scared. I, some of us are nice. I mean, obviously, this undoubtedly category, category includes you. Some of us are just nice and wouldn't ever commit a crime. An awful lot of people would commit a crime if they thought they'd get away with yeah. it and nothing would happen to mm. them. And as we've, as the police have abandoned the streets and gone to Mars or wherever it is they are, and as the prisons have become uh, places where, where you, you have to really strive to get into them generally, it's harder to get into prison than it is to get into university in modern Britain, then deterrence has faded. Yeah. And more people well, I mean, I think the, the front page of the uh, Times this morning, Braverman takes on the Met Chief over the jihad protest, oh, where well. she utters the immortal words, the police, in her words, quotes, must crack down on anyone breaking the law. <laughs> well, well know, that would I, be nice, wouldn't it? The problem, one of the problems with being in politics is if you go to the Houses of Parliament, you're surrounded by police officers. It's as if you were in some kind of 1950s... Uh, Miss Marple Village. Yeah. There are actual police officers right. there. You see them. If you're a minister... And some of them actually have guns. You're surrounded by police. Uh, so you, 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 you simply aren't aware of the fact that for most people, a policeman is, is a bit like a great orc. Yeah. Uh, a, a really major experience, which you take a photograph. Yeah. And tell well, I, I, I saw exactly a police officer. I was, I was off um, last week, as, as most people know, uh, and I went, some of the most exciting things I did in any given day was like going to the dry cleaners, that kind of thing. And as I was driving there... I suddenly saw four police officers walking down the road. It was so unusual. You had to stop. I sort of almost was going to stop and say, why are you here? What are you doing? There wasn't any crime, apparently, in the neighbourhood, but, but, you know, there they were. Yes, it is. When you see them, you realise how unfamiliar they are. Yeah, it really it, is weird. Of course, of course, no criminal justice system will work if people don't think they'll get caught. No, exactly this. Uh, Steph has sent this in on the, on the back of the three men who've escaped from that open prison. She says a close friend was in an open prison. He had people bringing steroids in for him. They could order pizza and they had prostitutes who basically left one cell uh, and were immediately hired in the next one. And because some of them still had jobs outside, the prison paid cash. Well, I know. Let's see. I mean, we need to, to, to know the name of the prison and the dates yeah. and so forth. Things do, uh, things are smuggled into prisons. Uh, 
uh, undoubtedly, particularly by drones these yeah. days, and it happens all the time. It's a fascinating book by a former prison officer called Alex South, mm. which I greatly recommend, uh, which describes some of the things which do go on. But don't let's get carried away. And for most people, I have to say, prison is not a matter of pizza or, or, or no. prostitutes. It's pretty squalid. Uh, it, it's, but I object to that because I think if you're if you're under the control of an authority who's trying to to turn you to a better life, then it shouldn't be squalid mm. and it shouldn't be disorderly. It should be. But it sounds. It, it should experience. be austere. Yes. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be dirty or disorderly or, 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 or needlessly grim. And it. it but. Ultimately, it must be under the control yeah. of authority, and the prisons are full. And this is the worst thing: they're full of drugs. Yeah. Having failed to control the the consumption of drugs in in the outside world, we completely have failed to control this mm. in prison. And so people go to prison, and immediately they find themselves amid spectacular, unrestrained lawbreakers. Yes, I remember when I worked in Scotland. There was a prison called Sockton, just on the outskirts of Edinburgh quite a tough prison for men. Um, and their method, their preferred method was to throw dead pigeons over the fence yeah. with drugs inside them. Drones have largely superseded these methods, I think. Yeah. But yeah, sure, those things are, are, are done. It's, it, they, they get in. And there are one of the things you also learn uh, if you watch Banged Up uh, is the disgusting uh, methods by which people smuggle stuff into prison inside their own bodies. Yes, And, and phones, you will actually yeah. then get visual confirmation of how they then get them out again which you may want to look away from. Yes, I won't be looking forward to that. But it's next week, is it? A week? Yeah, it starts on Tuesday week, tomorrow Tuesday week, week. 9.15, and then I think there are four episodes. OK, all right. Well, we shall, we shall have a look. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the big story, I suppose, still of the week. Um, the question for me now is whether um, we should be concentrating on what's happening here in this country and what the, um, uh, the police are actually doing, how dangerous it is for the Jewish population of this country, many of whom feel very put upon and very threatened by what they're seeing around them, um, how the police are dealing with all of these jihadist-type protests, but also, of course, with your experience of the Middle East, what, what's, what's next for Israel and what can they well, do? I think, I think Israel is making grave mistakes, and I think that there is a, there's an apparent uh, universal Western support for Israel, which I think will dissipate quite quickly. Already the, the universal sympathy for Israel after the grisly... Hamas attacks, kidnappings, murders, rapes, and mutilations has almost entirely faded into that. People have forgotten mm. uh, that it happened, and everyone's now concentrating on the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, which is not surprising because it's you know, it, it, there. It is. It's on the television all the time. You see people shelling an urban area, and they and they feel when the uh, w w when when the Arab cause says you know, you're killing women and children and so forth. I should think they probably are, because you can't shell and bomb an urban area without doing so. I think it's a mistake. Uh, whenever Israel has done this in the pub, well, not whenever, but certainly the past few times Israel has done this, I've mm. gone on record against it, because I think it's foolish. The, the, the battle for Israel's survival is going to be fought in Western public opinion. And if Western public opinion decides that Israel are the bad guys, uh, which is a, actually a bigger danger than many people realise, then that will be the end. Because yeah. ultimately, Western governments will not provide the diplomatic or military or other backing which are necessary for Israel to survive. But then that asks the question, or begs the question, what is Western public opinion? You know, is Western public opinion um, the actions of people marching to free Palestine in their hundreds of thousands around the world? Or is it in the uh, eyes and ears of the... Um, of the politicians 
who at the moment are still very much four square behind Israel. Well, there are two very different things here. I mean, the, the attitude, the unsurprising attitude of people in the Arab Muslim world of hostility to Israel, uh, particularly given the, the crude picture of the, of the crisis which they're given by their own country's media, and also the, the, the way in which I think a lot of Arab Muslim countries encourage hatred of Israel to divert what would be otherwise be strong discontent against their own misgovernment. Yeah. Uh, this is something which I don't think we can really do anything about. Mm. But in this country, I think there is a... It's, it's fascinating the way in which the left and people who consider themselves to be nice and civilised and virtuous uh, 60 years ago would by and large have been on the side of Israel against the Arabs, mm. regarded the Arabs as a reactionary cause. Now uh, the, the left have switched to being against Israel in favour of the Arabs, which has some interesting contradictions when you consider, for instance, the attitudes of most of, of organisations such as Hamas uh, towards the sexual revolution mm. here. Well, that is rather ironic, would, isn't it? Would get on. It's an odd coalition, but it is so. And it's so partly because I think there's a grave ignorance of the history of it and also because deep down the origin of the whole problem has been the racialist bigotry against Jews, which has plagued much of the world for centuries yeah. and which led to the creation of Israel in the first place. The whole yeah. reason why Israel exists is because that bigoted hatred of Jews took on such solid form in Germany uh, under Hitler, that there was no longer any answer to the to, 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 to the argument that there needed to be a place where Jews mm. could go uh, and escape from that at any time, and that that's what happened. Uh, and and yet, the many of the attitudes towards Israel, which persist in Western public opinion, are seem to me to have a slightly fishy uh, aspect to them. Uh, there's no country. Uh, which has a clean record in foreign policy or in its treatment mm. of, uh, of of civilians during war. Absolutely, Israel gets very very special treatment. It, it's, it's it's singled out for mm. criticism. United Nations, huge numbers of anti-Israel resolutions of the United Nations, and it it does things which other countries do, and it alone is right. censured for them. And there's something fishy about this to me. And it, the 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 really important thing about the Hamas attack, which was, as I say, a basic explosion of violent racialist bigotry, mm. the whole point about that was that it, it, it alerted the world to what Israel faces and how deep that hatred is. And for, for just a few days, uh, people might have begun to think, isn't it time we, we actually started to conquer this? Yeah. But now we slip back into it. And well, that's, this what, is that's what distresses me. Because the other problem for Israel is that they are, I would say, pretty much alone in being the country which is surrounded by other countries which want it to cease to exist. And which, you know, Hamas have said quite openly, Hezbollah have said quite openly, they're surrounded by Lebanon, and, you know, to the north, Egypt yeah. to the west, uh, they've got Syria over to the, the to the east. You know, they have a, a unique place in uh, the world. Yeah, really, but there has they? been a lot of progress in this over the past 10 years. I mean, a lot of Arab countries have become recognised and become willing to deal with Israel. Yeah, including Saudi and including yeah, UAE. And Jordan for a long time. Yeah. And, and the progress is being made in this. And then this comes along and you have to think, what did Hamas want when it sent its killers across the fence mm. into, into Israel to, to slit people's throats and kidnap children? What did they want? They wanted a violent Israeli yeah. reaction. And they've got one. Right. So Israel has given one rule of war, first rule of war, never do what your enemy obviously yeah. wants you to do. But again, that's in it, question as well, isn't it? It distresses me. But there's an awful lot of truth and counter-truth that goes on about Gaza. I mean, you yourself talked about going there well, and there. seeing a very different place than the one that yeah. was portrayed. I mean, I hear stories all the time which contradict each other. When they, for example, reopened the, um, uh, the aid lorries going through over the weekend when they passed 20 in, I saw... Um, 
a British doctor who was talking about his colleagues who work in Gaza. Uh, he said, well, of course, the thing is, this won't ever fulfil what is needed because normally on any given day, 200 trucks go in from Egypt into Gaza with aid. Now, you can't have it both ways. I've never can't heard say, that reported before. Well, you can't say yeah. that this is an open prison where nobody's got uh, anything, uh, but on the other hand, they've got 200 trucks full of aid going. I mean, it, it was always the only the only siege in history where... where, where um, Chinese motorbikes and Snickers bars came pouring into the yeah. into the besieged city. It's not. It isn't. It simply has never been that simple. I'm not recommending it to you as a holiday. No, of course not. It has many unpleasant aspects. Uh, I have often said, and will say again, that if if only it was led by intelligent and civilized leaders, it could become a very very uh, prosperous and, and attractive mm. place. But they don't want that. They want to keep those people in subjection and misery because it's good propaganda mm. against Israel. So it never right. happens. That what we really need is a, is the revolution in world opinion, which would which would stop people trying to use the 1948 refugee crisis, which was a real crisis, uh, as as a way of preventing the establishment of Israel as a permanent and peaceful state. Also, imagine. Israel is, in, is incredibly prosperous and, mm. uh, and and productive state. Imagine just if its neighbours were on good terms with it, how much good it would do to yeah. the region in general. But it, no one, people. Is it an intractable problem? To, it isn't intractable, but it's very nearly intractable. And the thing was, here was with Hamas's demonstration of pure bloodstained hatred on the seventh of October, uh, did provide a glimpse for people, a, a lightning flash in the ruins of just what's really going on, which Israel should have taken more advantage of. And the unimaginative response of the Israeli government to this is, just, just grieves me. Yeah. And by the way, I have one other, th- other thing I like to say. Many people, conservative people, now going on saying that, that people should be, should be uh, arrested and prosecuted for shouting out uh, anti-Israel slogans on the streets. I don't agree with this. I believe that speech should be free. If people want to incite actual violence, then that should remain illegal. But I want to know what these people think. And I think the world needs to sure. know what these people think. But if, if you're shouting if you, if you for start a jihad... Arrest, yeah, and if you start you know, arresting them, it, you're, 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 first of all, you're, you're preventing them from saying what they really think so you don't know anymore. And secondly, you're breaking the basic principle of a free society that you allow people to say what they want, not to do what they want, but to say what they want, uh, and, and so they can be answered and we can have a proper debate. Anyone who's really in favour of freedom shouldn't get involved with this, in my view. I think they should stop calling for it. Let them say what they want. I, I, I long for more people to know what Hamas really thinks. Mm. Well, if Labour get in, you'll be arrested for misgendering people, but that's another story. Uh, Peter Hitchens, thank you very much indeed. The show locked up uh, a week tomorrow. Uh, we'll speak to you again before that, hopefully next Monday. Uh, Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday there. Uh, they did lock him up, but he managed to escape. Thank goodness. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. After the break, we're going to get to the bottom of police inaction uh, as calls for jihad did fill the streets of London this weekend without punishment. Is that right? That's coming up. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Don't forget, keep getting in touch with all your thoughts on the topics we're discussing today. We'll read some of those out uh, very shortly. You can give us a call on 0344 499 uh, or, of course, you can text the word TALK, followed by your message, to 87222. The big story for us this morning has been what happened, not so much over in the Middle East, but what happened uh, on the streets of the United Kingdom. Uh, Home Secretary Suella Braverman is set to meet Metropolitan Police boss Sir Mark Rowley after police refused to do anything as protesters literally call for jihad on the streets of London. It's pretty unbelievable stuff. Here's what Transport Secretary Mark Harper told Talk Today about this earlier this morning. These are operational decisions for the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. That's right 
that they are operationally independent, but the Home Secretary will, as she usually does, meet with the police on a regular basis to talk about these issues. And the government's position is we want the police to use the full force of the law to be able to reassure people in our country that they can feel safe uh, on our streets, whatever community that they're from. I'm delighted to be joined now by former Metropolitan Police Detective Peter Blexley. Uh, Peter, people see being cautioned um, for mean tweets. Um, we've been hearing only last week on Plank of the Week that you know Labour Party would like to have you arrested and charged and sent to prison for misgendering people. But the police seem to be very reluctant to arrest people for calling for jihad. It was a very odd weekend, wasn't it? Well, of course, jihad to some is to spiritually strive against yes. moral failings mm. and jihad for others is to launch a holy war in yeah. the defence of Islam. Right. I, if I was still a police officer, would be rather irritated if I had arrested somebody calling for jihad, mm. only for them to go to court if they'd been charged, for yeah. example, if, if the facts suited a, a particular charge, for them to turn around and say, well, actually, I was calling for spiritually striving against moral failings yeah. and to see the case kicked out of court. Right. However, I imagine that in the policing corridors of power today, very quietly, after the last two weekends mm. and the relative lack of disorder that's taken place, the police are probably thinking they've done a job pretty well here. Well, they might be thinking that, but then, of course, the Jewish community would differ from you on that one because the police's view seems to be as long as they're not doing it anywhere near a Jewish school or near a Jewish synagogue uh, or any kind of, you know, Jewish area, if you like, of London, then they can carry on. But would suggest that if they were doing it in those areas, then it might be considered more of a crime. I mean, are we now dealing with a sort of two-tier policing situation? Inconsistency. Yeah. That's what many people will mm. think. And monitoring social media and the marches as closely mm. as I did over the weekend, it is clear that if the police are quietly patting themselves on the back, mm. there are many, many people out there who are frankly enraged by a lack of action, yeah. by people being able to stand on the streets of London and call for jihad in whatever form that is yeah. and not face arrest. However, another thing the Met have done, and they did this last night, there was one young man pictured at the weekend mm. waving a flag with Arabic writing yes. on it and he was his photograph was put up there asking if people could identify him right. by the Met Police. Yeah. He was identified and he was arrested yesterday. So this kind of... Was that the one with the ISIS flag? Yes. Right. And, and it clearly shows that there is... It's a deliberate tactic by the police that sometimes, if they feel an arrest is going to inflame the situation yeah. and could spark mass disorder, then they will gather what evidence they can through video and then identify the people and arrest them at a later stage when everybody's right. trotted off home. Wouldn't it be simpler just not to allow them to demonstrate in such large numbers? Because I know that um, some people have said this morning, why can't they operate the way they did during the coronation, for example, where they took the people that they thought were going to be difficult uh, and basically locked them up for a few hours um, and, uh, and then let them go later? Um, I know that that sort of is still creating rumbles of its own after the fact. But, you know, there's an awful lot of, of people who would say seeing hundreds of thousands or at least 100,000 people marching in the streets of London, it's quite an intimidating thing if you're from the Jewish community, isn't it? Once again, we're talking about the inconsistency yeah. of the policing, although I would strongly suggest that the overwhelming majority of the crowds that gathered for the coronation were peaceful, happy, yeah, They weren't calling for jihad. And, weren't, and they most definitely no. weren't. 
and I suspect the proportion of people who would cause trouble if they were given the slightest spark or just an opportunity would be higher at the protests that we've had yeah. the last two weekends than they certainly were. I mean, the other problem for me as well is that last night, non unbeknownst to most people, just because I happen to live nearby, um, there was a big protest that was sort of unofficial taking place in Tower Hamlets on the north side of the river by Limehouse, around that area, um, where the streets were basically brought to a complete standstill. Nobody could get anywhere. People were stuck for over an hour because the streets were literally taken over. Now... These um, demonstrators have also said they're going to continue to protest every single weekend. We've got, remember, it's Sunday coming up pretty soon. Um, we've already got the cenotaph kind of protected by, by fencing. You know, surely the police are going to have to take a view and say, look, you can't just keep doing this for as long as you like for the rest of time. Especially if that demonstration is in East London was not previously sanctioned, authorised and policed accordingly. Because right. people do have the right to move around London well, yeah. as they see fit. Well, we saw another instance, didn't we? I think it was on Friday night, where the Limehouse Link Tunnel, and I'm sorry for pe people who don't live in London, which basically connects Canary Wharf to the sort of the main part of the city, um, where there was a massive demonstration in there. People just stopped their cars, honked their horns, put their flashes on, and started waving flags around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're using the sort of tactic, perhaps they're going to call themselves Just Stop Israel. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to... Well, exactly. Stop and we know how eventually unpopular yeah. that organisation Well, right. Will and so from the point of view, surely, of just serving the people of London who are not demonstrating, the police have to get a grip of this. Because I take your point, and many people will say, Peter's right, it's better not to go steaming in and causing a problem. However, if these people think that they can get away with marching up and down Piccadilly every single Saturday, they'll keep doing it. Absolutely. And what does it show, though? It shows that, actually, we've not really got multiculturalism as some of no. the, the left would have us believe, what we've got is parallel yeah. culturalism. Because right. so many people that were enraged at the weekend were looking at these demonstrators, were looking at the huge number of flags that were being waved. And as somebody said to me, imagine if 100,000 straight people mm. went onto the streets of London, OK, and they were waving flags mm. and said straight pride, for example. Right. How intimidating might that be for the LGBTQ plus community. Well, I've got some bad news for the LGBTQ plus brigade because they had one of their flags nicked and stamped on and confiscated by uh, the, the P, uh, the Palestinian, the Free Palestine uh, supporters in Trafalgar Square. So despite the fact that they think they're all sort of allies in, uh, in left-wing politics, I'm afraid that's not quite right to be the case. But this is the other thing, you know, uh, the police warned off uh, a Christian group from having a demonstration in Golders Green, which is a very Jewish area that we both know well, um, they were told, oh, best not to do that because you might come to some harm. Well, that's extraordinary, isn't it, given what they're saying to the Free Palestine crowd? Once again, inconsistencies. Who can they protect? Who can't they protect? We simply don't have enough police to be able to, on the streets to protect everybody yeah. all the time. Right. And I can understand why there is an increasing frustration at what people perceive as inconsistencies and, quite frankly... Yes, there are hopefully going to be other arrests because I've seen evidence shown of signs yeah. which clearly break the law. I hope that people are arrested yeah. for that. Well, we've seen people with I support Hamas signs being held yeah. up and I was probably slightly impish at taking the mickey out of the police at the weekend because they said, if anyone was there, you know, could you let us know what you saw? And I'm going, well, actually, you were there. So why didn't you arrest them? And I know you've answered that question already, but we've done a poll this morning. Do you had chance heard at a recent Palestine rally in London? Um, the Met say that no offence has been committed. Do you think Jihad chance should be allowed in the name of freedom of speech? 80% no. 
And I think that's how most people in this country would generally um, agree with. It would be very interesting if I went to the, that demonstration, not that I, 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 I would join it for a moment, but I walked up to a police officer and I said, those protesters over there, they should be clumped. Yeah. Because one interpretation of clumped could be to clump right. someone. Another interpretation could be to gather them together. Yes. Because that also means right. to clump people together. Mm. So here, it's the language that's being played out on. Mm. But of course... But the police are looking very kind of nitpicky in desperately trying not to arrest anyone. You know, by one saying, well, jihad could mean something else. They also put out a, a tweet about the, the, the jihadi uh, stroke ISIS flag that was being waved around. And they actually said, we've hired professionals, we've hired specialists who have told us, oh, no, this is not an ISIS flag, uh, even though it looks very much like one to the naked eye or to the untrained eye. This is not an ISIS flag. This is actually uh, an expression of jihadi faith and, and faith in Islam. And you're kind of going, well, it looks pretty much like an ISIS flag to me. And the guy waving it is shouting the sorts of words which you would associate with jihad and violence. So what the hell's going on? Yeah, that flag expert line that the mm. police put out came in for a lot of ridicule did. on social media. They were saying, could they employ experts in getting out onto the streets and solving burglaries, yes. for example? And That might be an idea. That's a bit of the polite yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, I the only flag that appears to have been offensive to the police over the weekend was the St George's flag, where they actually cautioned somebody that if any racist stuff started happening, there'd be arrests made. Well, I saw that clip mm. from the police officer speaking to the lads that had the two flags of yeah. St George's. And to say that the police officer's language was... Clumsy yeah. is being, I think very being very polite. You're being very generous there, I think. Yes. Yeah, I think he's going to be hauled in before the beak as well to be told this is not how you deal with this kind of thing because it just looks disproportionate. But, I mean, we're dealing with a country here. I mean, this story amazed me at the weekend. It was an amazing front-page exclusive in the Sunday Times. Um, a Hamas fugitive who literally ran the terrorist operations in the West Bank and served on its ruling body for years and years and years and years lives in a council house that he bought in this country, in North London, uh, with a discount because he'd been living here for so long and he's now a citizen. His name is Mohammed Kasim Sawalha. Um, he evaded Israel security services using a relative's passport, fled to the UK in the 1990s. Even though he came here under a false name, under a false identity, he was given British citizenship. I mean, it's no wonder, is it, that, you know, the police are struggling to kind of contain the antecedents of all of these people, because he won't be alone. Um, as recently as 2019, he took part in an official Hamas delegation to Moscow where he met Vladimir Putin's deputy foreign minister. I mean, it's hard to believe this, isn't it? What a wonderful contributing member of society he I mean, turned out to be. Incredible. What a great decision to allow him mm. to reside in this country. He's really, really benefiting Britain. Yeah. In 2009, it gets worse, he signed a notorious declaration that praised Allah for having routed the Zionist Jews, called for weapons to be sent to Gaza and demanded a third jihadist front to be opened in Palestine alongside Iraq and Afghanistan. I wonder if our counter-terrorism police are aware of all of this. Well, I they will be they, now. They will read the Sunday Times. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if there is any kind of visit that might be in order. Well, he lives in the borough of Barnet, which has got the highest Jewish population of any population in Britain. It won't be surprising to know that it's got a Labour council. Um, and it's just incredible to me that he bought... He used the right-to-buy scheme to purchase his house uh, for 320000 uh, with a Barnet council grant of 112000 discount on the market value. More fool us for getting every day and going to work. 
I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it? You do wonder what has gone wrong uh, in this country. You really do. Uh, there's so many other things we can talk about, Peter, but I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. But I think we can both agree that the longer that these Palestinian, pro-Palestinian demos go on, the more difficult it's going to be for the police, not the easier. Yes, and I would very much like to be a fly on the wall at the meeting between Suella Braverman mm. and the Commissioner of the Met, Sir Mark Rowley. That will be yeah. a very interesting conversation. It will, absolutely right. We'll be listening and watching out for that. And we're expecting as well that there might be a Suella Braverman statement uh, in the House of Commons at some point today, which, of course, we will uh, bring with you. Peter, thanks very much indeed. Good to see you. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we're going to discuss Tories in turmoil. Rishi Sunak struggling to quell a revolt after that by-election problem that he had last week. Fears that there are dozens of MPs ready to send no-confidence letters in uh, mean that we could have yet another Prime Minister before the next election. Really? See you after the break. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.